chapter 16, verses 1 through 13 is what we're going to look at this morning. That's printed for you there in your bulletin and behind me on the screen and also in a pew Bible um, there in front of you. This is God's word. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears, he will kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. And Samuel did what the Lord commanded and he came to Bethlehem. And the elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, do you come peaceably? And he said, peaceably. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves And come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. And when they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. And the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees, man looks on the outward appearance But the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, are all of your sons here? And he said, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes. And he sent and he brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, arise and anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah, the word of the Lord. Let me pray and ask his blessing uh, upon it. Father, we, we thank you for your word, that your word is truth, and even as um, we begin to look at the life of this king who lived about 3,000 years ago, Father, what we find is that it is part of your word that has been breathed out for our good. And so, Father, we pray that you would open our eyes and our ears and our hearts so that we might see, that we might hear, that we might believe this morning in the one whom you have sent, the one whom you have anointed, the one who has perfectly loved you at every moment and has perfectly loved his neighbor as himself and has died in our place, your son Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. I think uh, the older I get, the more I think I realize that most of the things that, that we do, most of the things that we're drawn to, uh, most of the things that we, we choose to kind of associate ourselves with are probably rooted in this desire for us to be part of something that is significant, right? 
not a bad thing, um, a good thing that, that a lot of us, we want instinctually, we feel like I want to be a part of a story that is good, that has a happy ending. I want to be a part of something that feels um, important, weighty, of value, significance. And if you look at um, even children, like from the youngest ages, you see that impulse that, that's in them. I remember when my, my oldest daughter, who's now 19, was was about probably two, three, four, that age. You know, they go through phases of things that they're interested in, and it was, you know, Dora Explorer, the Explorer for a while, and I don't even know what the new shows are now, but there was a point in which the longest kind of period of her being just enamored with something was, was the princess period. And um, she just loved everything, and maybe it was just because um, there's marketing geniuses out there that have really, like, honed into something, and she just you know, bit on hook, line, and seeker, but I mean, she loved princesses. And so naturally, what that meant is that we had, you know, princess nightgowns, and we had princess outfits, and we have plates and cups and bowls with princesses on them, and we sat down and we read stories about princesses, and I realized I had never in my life read the story of Cinderella. I had one brother growing up. We just didn't, I don't know, it just passed me over. And I didn't realize, like, her name, I mean, literally when my child, when I was reading it to her, oh, her name's Cinderella, like, after ashes and cinder. Had no idea. (laughs) And that story, though, is, is such a perfect example of what we're drawn to is this one who is sitting in the ashes, who's been overlooked, who's been neglected, is really the one who becomes this princess. And there was a part, even as I watched my daughter enamored with that and even kind of like, you know, would sort of get irritated at the overmarketing towards my child that made us want to buy more things with princesses on them, I still realized there's something in her that is drawn to something that she is made for, that she's made for more and she knows it. Maybe you participated um, this weekend in sort of the return uh, of college football in one way or another. And, and maybe, there we go, back in the back. We got an Ohio State fan back there. Um, and you, you, you look at college football and you look at how many folks are just drawn to it and enamored by it, and you realize it's more than just about a game. I mean, so I went to University of Tennessee back when we were good, which was a long, long time ago, guys. And I remember, like, some of my best memories in college were sitting in Neyland Stadium with 100,000 of my closest friends, or so I thought, because that's how it felt. Because we were on the same team, right? That we referred to that team as my team. And we were winners, right? We were a part of something that we felt was weighty and significant. And we wanted to be identified with it. But here's the thing, I think that the reason we're drawn to those kind of things is because I have never in my life at least met anyone who didn't in some way and at some point in their life feel very small and very insignificant. That even the most, you might meet the most confident, outgoing person that you've ever met, and and this has happened to me many times that I've been able, maybe as part of my profession, to sit alone with them long enough, and what you realize is that no matter how much confidence someone exudes, that there's part of them that feels that there's something more that they're missing, 
that they were made for something that is, that is bigger. And for some of us, that's maybe the reason that we become workaholics and we're terrified to stop because we're afraid if we're not doing, 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 then who are we? And for others of us, it means that we've given up. We've thought, I don't know how to make my life significant and important. And so maybe I've begun to just drift or, or numb myself out. And you go, well, what does this have to do with the story of David? And I think... I think that that desire that's in us has everything to do with the story of David. Because the thing that, if you're listening, some of y'all have maybe heard that, that passage read many times before in your life, but the thing that jumps out at me at least every time I hear this story and read this story is that the thing that is most prominent is the fact that David is considered to be completely insignificant. He's not, I mean, by his father, by his brothers, by Samuel, that nobody even thinks to invite him in. And yet the way that God sees when he looks at David, everyone else disregards him, sees him as insignificant, and yet God sees him as royalty. God sees him as the next king. And maybe we've heard the story so many times that it doesn't grab us, but really this story is a paradigm for everything that we see in Scripture. Like so many things are tied into this story that we couldn't possibly even cover them all this morning, but we've got all semester together. So what I want to do is I just simply want to recount what happens. Let's just walk back through what happens in this story, and then I just want to ask the question, why does that possibly matter to you this morning? What happens... And why does it matter? So the chapter, it opens, we need a little bit of history and a little bit of background. It opens with God talking directly to one of his prophets named Samuel. And Samuel, one of his big jobs was to find and anoint the king, and that had happened. And yet God had rejected this king, Saul. And so Samuel is mourning that, right? He's mourning the loss of this king because this was kind of his life's work. This is what he had invested everything into, and now God had rejected Saul because Saul had, had blatantly disobeyed God. And so Samuel is grieving. And God kind of tells him, like, all right, that's enough. God is not anti-grieving or anti-mourning. But what God is saying to Samuel is that you have already kind of given up, and I'm just getting started. And so stop, stop your grieving, and you realize that Samuel is thinking in his own mind that the history of God's people has been one where they've had some really, really pretty miserable leaders. If you've never read Judges, you could start there. And they're thinking, what we want is we want a king, like other nations have. We want to be like other nations. And some of that desire was not just to, you know, we can talk about that and go like, they just wanted to be like other nations, you know. But part of it was survival. If to have a king meant you were established. It meant you had an army. It meant you had a taxation system. It meant you became like organized and, and defensible. And so they wanted a king like other nations had a king. And man, Saul just really seemed to fit the profile. He looked like a king, he talked like a king, he acted like a king, he had all the kingly qualities, and yet God said, that's not actually the one. 
And so it's understandable that Samuel would be upset. If Saul failed, what Samuel was thinking is the whole nation might fall too. If, if, there, if our king is rejected by God, does this mean that, that we will be rejected as well? Does this mean that like we're going to be attacked or taken captive? Maybe so. And I, this is just a, you know, a, a brief side note, but how I, as I'm reading this and thinking about it, I think how often I can grieve because I think that God's plan has failed. And how often, you know, maybe let's just think about, I don't know, the last couple of years, you may have had that experience. And you thought, God has, his, what, his promises to me, it seems like they are, um, they are not being met in the way that I would, I would have hoped. And I'm beginning to grieve, and I'm beginning to mourn, and I'm beginning to question, and I'm beginning to doubt when the fact is God has not forgotten his promises. God is just getting started. And that's what he's saying to Samuel. You don't understand what I have in mind. You can't even fathom it. And so what I need you to do is I need you to to trust me. I need you to stop your grieving. I need you to grab your anointing equipment because I'm going to send you to Bethlehem. Great. Right? I mean, Samuel must have thought, like, is this some sort of, like, cruel joke? That we have this beautiful king, you reject him, and now you tell me to get my anointing supplies and head where? Head to Bethlehem? That's not a place where kings are born. Why in the world would we go there? But then Samuel obeys. He goes to Bethlehem. They're terrified that he's there because they don't know what's about to happen. Are they being judged for something? Or they're terrified thinking if word has spread that maybe Saul has been rejected. What's, what's, what does this mean if, if this prophet is coming to our town? That Saul himself, you could tell, is nervous because if, I mean, if Samuel is nervous because if Saul finds out, that means what, what's going to happen, Right? But they bring a heifer to sacrifice. They, they invite the town to show up for this barbecue. And maybe Samuel's thinking, it's not, maybe it won't be so bad. Because Jesse has quite a few sons. And he sees the first son, Eliab. And he's like, I should have trusted Yahweh. Because this man is a king. He looks like a king. He walks like a king. We're not told exactly what Samuel saw in him, but I imagine Samuel thought he kind of looks like Saul. He acts like a king, and he looks like it. We were, um, speaking of college football, we watched the very beginning of that Ohio State-Notre Dame game last night, and um, as they, before the game even starts, as they kind of film everyone walking in, um, you know, we're kind of chatting um, in, in our living room, but what caught our eye on the screen was the coach for Notre Dame. Have you seen this guy? He's beautiful, right? You're like, that guy looks like a coach. I mean, he it was in his suit. He had a beautiful woman next to him. And we, everyone stopped and we're kind of like, man, that's an important looking coach. Marcus Freeman, look him up. Um, and, you know, and so we, and we thought, like, immediately, based on how this guy just carried himself and looked... We thought that his team would probably prevail, which didn't happen. 
There's no question in Samuel's mind, this is the new king. He starts reaching for his anointing gear. And if this was Samuel's choice, what would happen is they would be right back where they started at the beginning, where they were with Saul, that he wanted to be identified, Samuel wanted to be identified with what he thought was greatness. And Eliab had greatness written all over him. And so the crowds are watching. They know something important is about to happen. And the brothers are passing by one by one. And every time God is saying, nope, not it, next, And I imagine, you know, Samuel begins to ask Jesse and look at Jesse. It's like, is this the right place? Are you the right Jesse? Maybe I got the town wrong. Maybe there's another Jesse in town with a bunch of sons. Are there any more? Well, there's one more, but, I mean, we didn't even invite him in. I mean, he's somebody has to keep the watch over the sheep. And so all these other brothers had, like, you know, probably gotten all dolled up and looked as important as they could, and they left all the duties to this, this youngest brother, the runt of the family, whose name were not even told until the very end. And they were like, we didn't even think to invite him. Why in the world would the youngest be anything um, that is of significance, especially of royalty? But Samuel says, I mean, by process of elimination, we must have found him. So go get him. We're not going to eat until you bring him in. And it's like, if this was a movie scene, I have no idea. I would love to know how long it took to go get David. Because it's like well, this awkward moment where everyone's kind of sitting around, and it's like the brothers are all dressed up and all been rejected. People are waiting for the sacrifice to happen. And like it could have taken hours to go find David and to bring him in. And when they, he, they bring him in, did he know anything about what was going on? I mean, was he just like, you know, his hair's messed up and he's got mud on his sandals and he reeks of sheep and who knows how long he had been out there. And he, you know, sees everyone gathering. He's like, nobody even told me we were having a party. I got left out in the cold. And God says to Samuel, this is the one. This is the one that I have chosen. This is the the very one that nobody even thought to bring in is the very one that I am going to work through, anoint him. And I imagine everyone is thinking him, he is the runt of the family, he's a dirty shepherd, and it's not till the end of the section that we actually get his name, David. There is nothing significant about him. There is no reason to look at him and think that he should be the next king. He didn't ask for it. He didn't earn it. He didn't do anything to deserve it. God simply said, you're the one, and that's it. So what does make David significant then? What what makes this story, this life, worth um, reading? And all of it stems from this moment where God chooses to work through the small and the weak and the insignificant things of this world. What makes David significant from this point forward are not his great accomplishments, it's not his great wealth, it's not even as we'll see his great failures, it's this, is that he has been made a part of God's story. Period. Through sheer grace. And so the question is, that's what happened, and the question is for us, well, why, what, why does that matter? Is it just like... Bible lesson time, like great, you, you could kind of say, great for David, awesome. 
glad you're a part of God's story. I'm glad your life became significant because of this, but what does that mean for us? And there's two things that I'll say, and one, one of them is this, is the reason that it's significant for us and it matters to us because we're deliberately told in this passage the way that God sees. And as it turns out, God sees things very, very differently than the way that we see things. And that's really good news because here's the thing, all of us are really prone to sum up life, individual situations, circumstances based on what we can see on the outside. I mean, we can look at somebody just, we did it this morning without even thinking that you could look at somebody and you could think that you know something about them and you can make even judgments about their character simply based on what you see on the outside. That we do this to other people, but we we also do it to ourselves that we feel like I will be, I'll feel important when I look important. And so maybe that means for you, maybe that has to do with, you know, we don't maybe exercise just because we want to be healthy. It's because we want to look a certain way or that we want to to dress a certain way. We feel significant maybe when we, we live in a house, in a neighborhood that says something about what we've accomplished, what we've done. That it sends a signal that, like, I've worked hard and I've, I've put to, to use the, the things that God's given me. And look at the fruit of that. Look at what I've done. Look at me. That we look at the outside so easily. Maybe we think about we feel important because of our intelligence, our degrees, our education. And because of that, what, one of the things we're drawn to constantly is we're drawn to thinking that there is something out there that is going to make my story worth reading. There's something out there that's going to make me feel significant, and it often looks like something that we can wrap our hands around, something that we can do or accomplish. Maybe it looks like a better job, or maybe it looks like um, better vacations, or um, extra square footage, or the next outfit, or more pounds lost, or the promotion, or the next postgraduate degree, or the 70-hour work week. And we think that maybe those things will make us feel valuable. Maybe I'll wake up one day and my story will be worth reading. And what, the reason that this matters to us, what we read in this passage right now, is because God blatantly says, I don't care about any of those things. Everything that the world looks at and says, this is what makes you important or powerful or worthy or significant, God is saying, those aren't the things that I'm looking at. Those aren't the things that, and so why is that good news for you? Because you can quit judging yourself and other people based on those things. So what happens then? Why is this important? Because God doesn't look on the outward appearance. If there's a theme for all of David's life that we're going to look at, it's that one verse that God doesn't look on the outward appearance, that God looks on the heart. So the question is, what does God see then in David's heart? And some of us, are, some of us start thinking, what, is, what, is, what does he see in David's heart and how do I get it? How do I manipulate my life in order to have that thing in my heart so that when God looks at my heart, um, he's drawn to it? 
right? That's how our minds start to think because we're people who are conditioned not to see the way that God sees. And remember, what what you have to remember here is that, that Samuel is not telling us the way in which God saves us, okay? That he's not telling us that, here, here's what happens, that God comes down and he looks in all the different hearts and he's like, oh, we got one over here. This one's a pure one. Good heart, right over here. Sweet, good heart. Bless his heart. And this is one of mine. And I think that that's what we think that is, is happening here. But we're told over and over in Scripture that there is no one who is righteous. There is no not one. That the, what, what do we know about the heart? Well, that it's deceitful above all things. Who can understand it? We know that if we're going to be a part of God's family, that he actually has to take out our heart of stone, and he has to give us a heart of flesh. So Samuel isn't telling us about salvation. He's telling us about how God chose the next king. And how did he choose the next king? What did he see in David's heart? And I think it's just this. It's that David already knew God. That he already trusted him. That what what God sees when he looks at David's heart is not a person who's more pure than the rest of his brother. It's just a person who already knows and trusts in God's sovereignty and his might and his mercy. So it's important because we know that it tells us something about what God sees. But secondly, most of you who have been through enough Sunday school know that this tells us something about another king who was born in a place called Bethlehem. You think about the parallels. I mean, we'll look at them throughout the study, but I mean, Jesus, from a very insignificant place, I mean, most of, you think about most of Jesus' life is not recorded. Why? Because it would probably put you to sleep. There's just nothing to report. I mean, he was, after he was born from a woman who was a virgin that raised some eyebrows, I mean, he grew up to be a carpenter. And a lot of it was pretty blah stuff. We don't have a lot of it recorded until one day Jesus is standing in a river with this crazy looking guy named John the Baptist and there Jesus is anointed that he is baptized, that he is the Messiah, the chosen ones and the heavens rip open and the voice of his father comes down saying, this is my beloved one in whom I am well pleased. And God is saying that this son of mine is going to please me in every way. That at every moment and every second of his life, he is going to perfectly love and obey. That this is the one, as Jesus is baptized, that that the Father is saying, this is the only one who has ever walked the earth that has clean hands and a pure heart. And you know what? There's all sorts of connections we can make to this, but I'm going to bring this into a landing. You know, and you know why this is important to you. Because Paul tells us in Romans chapter 6 that those, who have, who have, those of us who have been baptized into Christ, that we have been baptized into his death and into his resurrection so that you have now been raised with Christ, 
You are now dead to sin, and you are now alive to God. And is, is that something that you merited? Is that something that God looked at you and said, I'm going to do this because you're better than the next person? No, it's because simply you cried out for mercy, that you called upon the name of the Lord so that you might be saved. And who is that open to? Anybody, without any distinction. Any and everybody who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And that matters because right now at this very moment, what does that say about you? Paul tells us in Galatians 2 that it says about you that you have now been crucified with Christ and it is no longer you who live, but it's Christ who lives in you. And the life that you now live in the body, you live by faith in the Son of God who loved you and gave himself up for you. So Paul is saying that you who belong to Jesus this morning, his story is your story. Your significance rests in one thing that can never be taken away from you, that you are united with Christ. And when the Father looks down on you now, he says, you are my beloved, and in you I am well pleased, that you have a new name, that you have a new story. It's Jesus' story. Listen to how Peter said it in those New Testament reading that we heard earlier in the service, he's talking to these people who are scared and persecuted and um, spread out, dispersed, and he says, you know what you are? They're like, we're people who are like running for our lives and probably about to be killed. And he says, no, you're a chosen race. You're a royal priesthood. You're a nation, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light once you were not a people but now you are God's people once you had not received mercy but now you have received mercy friends this morning if your trust is in Jesus you can go home you can look in the mirror and what you're staring at is a miracle that is every bit as radical and wild and crazy as the story of David that you are looking at a real-life Cinderella story. Nothing that you did could have made it happen. It was purely out of sheer grace. And when you come to this table in just a minute, you come and you celebrate and you feast and you remember that he has one who sought you out when you were in the field, when you were forgotten, and he has brought you in and he has crowned you with life forevermore. Some of you might be standing or sitting here this morning and you feel like you're still out in the field and you're wondering, is it okay for me to come in? Am I supposed to have a better heart? Am I supposed to look more like, more like David? Jesus says, whoever comes to me, I will not cast out. That means right now, the, the day of salvation is today. Call upon his name and I promise he will hear you. What prevents you from doing that? Nothing. Nothing other than just confessing and seeing that you are desperate and needy, and he is one who loves to help those who are desperate and needy. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we, um, we thank you for your son Jesus. We thank you for this story of David that gives us a more full picture even of who Jesus is and why he came. Father, we, um, we thank you that 
You did not choose the things of this world that the world thinks are most beautiful or good or important, but you actually chose the weak things of this world, and you chose to work through the foolishness of the cross. And Father, that tells us a lot about our lives. And Father, we thank you that even, even as we saw with David, who was anointed, that the rest of his life was a lot of ways a struggle. And we look at Jesus after he's baptized, and he's sent immediately to be tempted and tried. And so, Father, we even know in our own lives that those of us who belong to you, that our lives may not look beautiful and pretty from the outside, but you see us as priests, as princes, as royalty, because we are connected to your son, Jesus. It's his name we pray. Amen. This morning, if you, if you do belong to Jesus and if you've been baptized into his name, then this table is the sacrament that he has given to us so that each week we can come and we can taste and we can see once again, despite everything that we might have experienced this week, that God is with us, that he loves us, that he has promised that he is even making a place for us.